the, um, the church was, uh, the Bible was meant to be a blessing, but unfortunately it has become a battleground. And on the pages and from the pages of the Bible, some of the fiercest battles have raged and been fought. You wouldn't believe the interpretations that have been forced upon the Scripture. All kinds of ideas have been forced upon the Word of God, and nowhere is that more true than in the second chapter of the book of Acts. You can read concerning the Pentecostal experience and the interpretation coming out of the book of Acts. Uh, repentance, an idea about repentance, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, about tongues, about baptismal regeneration, about the gift of the Holy Spirit. All kinds of interpretations have been forced upon Acts 2. It reminds me of the... Um, old Hindu fable of the men who came to see the elephant and each of them was blind. And John Godfrey Sachs says it like this, It was six men of Hindustan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against its broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here, so very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most, what most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, E'en the blind ma blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can, this mar marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. And W.A. Criswell has his own little moral to that and says, So oft the, theology, the theologic wars, the disputants I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. There are many interpretations forced upon chapter 2, one of the most marvelous passages of Scripture in all of the, in all the Bible. If you picked up chapter 2 of the book of Acts and you just read it, beginning at about verse 15 or 16, you might not know that this was a sermon preached. As, as a matter of fact, 
It is the first sermon preached in the New Testament church age. And when I, wanna, when I read a sermon, there are two or three questions I ask about it. These three questions are there in your outline. The first question is, why did he preach it? Or as it is there, what it preached. I think that's a typographical error from my poor penmanship. Why did he preach this sermon? The reason he preached it is in response to verses 12 and 13. If you were not here last Sunday night, you'll not understand. Let me give you a little review. That when the Holy Spirit came in supernatural power upon the church, the great evidence of that power was not in the mighty rushing wind or the fire that came upon them, tongues of fire, but in the demonstration of the preaching of, Simon, of, of Peter. And he began and, and he preached, and they who spoke spoke in the native tongue of the people who were there. And there were people there in the city from all over the known world. And they heard the gospel preached in their mother tongue. And not only did they hear it in their mother tongue, they heard it in the dialect of their own uh, communities where they lived. And some of them said, what means this? What is happening here? I'm hearing these, this message preached by these ignorant Galileans and they're preaching in my mother tongue and in my own dialect. And it astounded them. They marveled at it. And some of them were saying, these men are just drunk with new wine. They weren't drunk with sweet wine. They were drunk with a sweet Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing that when the Holy Spirit begins to demonstrate Himself in the midst of the congregation, we try our best to explain that away. And so in response to this question, what does this mean? And in response to these men who were saying, these fellows are just drunk as they preached, he stood to preach this message. The second question I ask when I read a sermon is, what did the, what did the message include? What did he say? Some of you wonder that after you leave on Sunday. Now, what did he say? What, what was the message he preached? His message contained two parts. First part, he explained the meaning of the tongues. That is, he explained what was happening as these men preached in the mother tongue of the people present. It would be like my starting to preach tonight in Chinese, and I don't want one single word in Chinese. If there are a group of Chinese people here, and all of a sudden I begin to preach to them in Chinese, and in the, in the dialect of the area of country where they're from. And, and Peter stood and preached, and the message explained that happening, that phenomenon, that supernatural thing. And he said, in essence, that God was just speaking through their vocal cords. He was overcoming every barrier in a supernatural way that the gospel might be proclaimed to them and they might go home to their, to their countries with the message of the gospel, having heard it for the first time. The second thing that was in the message he preached, he just began to talk to them about Jesus. That's the heart of the gospel, as a matter of fact. He said, this Jesus whom you crucified, some of them there may have had some of his own blood spattered upon their garments as he was crucified on the tree. They watched him die. Simon Peter stood boldly. Now remember that this man was the man who had denied his Lord in cowardice and fear not many hours before. 
And he said this, Jesus whom you crucified, he has made both Lord Kurios, the lifted up one, and Christ the anointed one. He came to live on earth a sinless life, and you crucified him, the Son of God. But God did not leave him in the grave, but raised him from the dead. He preached Jesus to them. The third question I usually ask when I read a sermon or hear one is, how long is it going to take? How long did he preach that? Well, you read the sermon for yourself. It took about three and a half minutes. Now, don't get any ideas. I'm not as, um, I'm not as skillful as, uh, as Peter. It's going to take a little longer than three and a half minutes. And they interrupted his sermon. Don't get any ideas about that either. They interrupted right in the middle of his sermon. And they couldn't wait to respond. Let me tell you something. When the Holy Spirit begins to settle down upon a message, there is such power and conviction in that message, a man can hardly wait to respond to it. Now, I have a little bit of a problem with long invitations at the end of a sermon. Have you noticed I don't have long invitations? I've been to some uh, services where the evangelist just kind of, you know, it was just kind of an endurance campaign to see who could hold out the longest. It seems to me that when the Holy Spirit comes in power, there's no need for an extended invitation. As a matter of fact, we won't be able to wait to get down that aisle, make our response. One day a, man, a young man came to me and said, I'd like for you to go visit my father-in-law. And he lived in Wichita Falls, Texas. I was living in Iowa Park at the time told me this man was lost. By the way, he's been in our church here. He's related to some people here in Durant. I went to Manuel Moyer's house in Wichita Falls, Texas, and I shared the gospel with him. I've never sensed in any witness that I've ever had the power of God is that night. Perspiration just was pouring off that man. And I shared with him the gospel, and he rejected the gospel. Next Sunday morning when I got up to preach, I looked back there and he was sitting on the back row of the, of, the, of the service. And I started to preach about halfway through the service. He came down the outside aisle and down toward the front. He couldn't wait till the end of the service to give his life to Christ. And so when Peter stood to preach, the anointing of the Spirit of God was on his message. And he preached three and a half minutes a sermon that had at its heart Jesus Christ, the kurios, the Lord, the lifted up one, the Christ, the anointed one, and he himself anointed by the Spirit of God. And the man stood and interrupted his sermon and came forward to, and, and cried, Sirs, what must I do? And that leads us to the response to what happened when he preached. The scripture says that he was pierced. They were pierced to the heart. The Greek word means they were stabbed. It's like it's the picture of one taking a knife and thrusting it into something. They were stabbed. It is God-given guilt. They were pierced to the heart. Now, if you want to turn sometime to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, you'll read that familiar passage. Let's just do it. Verse 12, Hebrews 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, 12 reads, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Romans invented the two-edged sword. And they had these battle axes that they would use and they'd come down hard on the, 
uh, enemy's uh, battle helmets to do their damage. But these Romans were ingenious in their skills of uh, war and they invented a two-edged sword that was sharp like a razor and they would use it like this to cut and when it come back they'd cut from both sides. And the Bible says, for the Word of God is active and sharper than a two-edged sword and piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I tell you, the Word of God will cut where nothing else can reach. And they were pierced. I came into an auditorium about this size, wasn't this many people in a little dead church. <laughs> I was a senior in high school. I sat right back there where those guys are sitting, right on the back. And I had about as much uh, interest in the sermon, I think. And while the preacher stood to preach, he said, he began, you know, the same guy that I'd heard all my life, my parents made me go to church, but he began to preach. And I felt, Something pierced my heart that night. I felt the power of God, the Word of God, like a two-edged sword. And I came down to the front and made the confession, the hardest confession I had ever made, that I was a sinner, a member of the church, but I was lost without Christ. I was sitting in a, in a lay witness meeting one time and a layman got up. He was a businessman in Lubbock, Texas and he just kind of sauntered up to the platform and he had a Bible and he read a text and he proceeded from there, you know, just took off. And somehow he kind of wandered around till he got to the experience of the cross and he said, most of you folk out there, even preachers sometime, he said, kind of bootleg the gospel. I don't know what he meant by that. I think he meant kind of, you know, just kind of keep it hidden. Bootleg the gospel. He said, I want you to know that Jesus took the cross on his back and walked right down Main Street. And I felt something pierce my heart. I mean, just a simple statement. I remember, I remember that I felt pain. I gasped for breath. Tears came down my face immediately. It was the Word of God anointed and it pierced me. And I, I, I long to see that happen, don't you? And we come Sunday after Sunday, you know, to the place where the Word is taught and preached and read. And we've heard it so often, we're kind of calloused over. Oh, to see the demonstration of the, of the sword of the Spirit pierce the heart of the complacent. And I pray for that. And so they cried, what must we do? It's, a, it's obvious that when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and pierces the heart of man, His immediate response is, what must I do about this? I'm wrong. Now, in answer, turn the page, the explanation, verses 38 to 40. Now, the rest of what I'm going to say is the elephant. Now, there are other people, other preachers, other groups, other denominations, I'm sure, they're going to feel along the elephant, and they're going to give their own interpretation of this passage, but I want to give the correct one. <laughs> 
No, I want to give the answer, the explanation. There are three commands in verses 38 through 40. You might miss one of them. The first command is repent. The second command is be baptized. And the third command is in verse 40. These are all imperatives. And and the third command is be saved. Repent. Now you need to remember that the New Testament was written to, to people of the first century who were not conversant in English. They didn't speak English. They didn't know English. The language of the New Testament was Koine Greek. To us, the word repent means to be sorry. I repent, I'm sorry for what I did. But the Greek word is literally, really a combination of two words. The word to turn and the word mind. To turn mind. It means to turn the mind around. It means to adopt a whole new thought system. It means to reverse the thinking. It means to have a change of mind. Now, I've had some, um, I've had a repentance in my mind. Let me give you an example. I used to think that you know, that only pagans lived in the Northwest. I'd, I'd heard that as a mission field, there were no Christians up there. And, and, uh, and, and you couldn't really be a Christian, you know, and live in the Northwest, in Washington and Oregon and Western Canada. And so I went up there, and I spent about three years ministering up there, and I, I, I repented. I had a change of mind about that. Some of the finest Christian people I know on earth live in the Northwest. Some of the most godly people I know live in the Northwest. That's repentance. It means to adapt a whole new thought. It means to reverse the thinking. Now, what Peter is saying is this. You need to change the thought. You need to adopt a whole new thought. You need to to change the thinking concerning Jesus Christ and yourself. Repent. Now you say, will I not feel sorry? You may feel sorry, but feeling sorry doesn't save you. Feelings don't save you. Repentance toward God saves you. The second command, be baptized. Now, there are some uh, who feel the elephant along the side and say this means baptismal regeneration. I saw a bumper sticker going down the street the other day on a car and it said, Obey Acts 2.38. I can tell you where that car, what parking lot that car sits in on Sunday morning. I can tell you that for sure. That's baptismal regeneration. It's what that suggests. It's what's taught from Acts 2.38. I want you to look carefully at that passage. Look at carefully at verse 38. The word and suggests a process that begins as a result of repentance. Let me say that again. The word and suggests a process that begins as the result of repentance. As the result of repentance, be baptized. As a result of your change of mind toward Jesus Christ and the adoption of the new idea about Him, be baptized as a result of that. 
Now the little word for, repent and be baptized for, is a Greek word ice. It's a three-letter word and the whole system of theology is based on that by some. It could mean as a means to, for as a means to, that is, repent and be baptized as a means to forgiveness of sins, or it could be as a result of or on the basis of, for, as a result of or on the basis of. That is, repent and be baptized as the result of your forgiveness of sins. Imagine tonight that you lived a hundred years ago or so, so, the, dirt, the streets out here would be dirt and there'd be little livery uh, stations, uh, uh, places around here and, and saloons. And, and on the walls of the, the little wood buildings, you know, on the hitching posts there in the wooden street, you'd see this poster and his picture on it and say, Wanted for robbery, Jesse James. Now Jesse James would not be wanted so he could commit a robbery for robbery, he would be wanted because he had committed robbery, right? Repent and be baptized, not so that you can be forgiven, be baptized because you have been forgiven. Now it would be tragic if we just dealt, dealt theologically with this term and missed the beauty of what it means to be saved, wouldn't it? There are two things that are the result of repentance and being baptized. He said there is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. That's the number one desire of every lost man. If you did a survey tonight on the streets of Durant and you ask a lost man if you could be safe, if Christianity were really genuine and you could have a new birth experience, you know, what would be the motivation for that? He'd probably tell you, so I could have my sin forgiven. 